Okay, Fearful Symmetry. Definitely one of the highlights of Season 3. So a little uh, note about the music as we begin here. When uh, Supergirl, or, or what we at least believe to be Supergirl at this point in the episode, becomes uh, she becomes embroiled in her little action scene here, the, uh, the music in the background is interesting. It's Galatea's theme, which is just a, a sort of a simple four-note arrangement, but instead of being sung by the sort of uh, synthesized pseudo-choir that it usually is, and you can hear that kind of arrangement later on when she, uh, when she comes into General Hardcastle's home, here instead it's played with the uh, electric guitar as much as Supergirl's sort of fun, girly music is normally played. So you have the, the villain's musical theme, which you don't really know is the villain's theme yet at this point in the episode, because we don't know the villain exists, played uh, with the hero's section of the quote-unquote orchestra. Of course, it's all synthesized, but uh, still, it's it's an interesting way they did it to uh, to blur the lines between the two characters, the villain and the hero's skin, as it were. So this episode is special in uh, in a lot of ways. The the two uh, most prominent ways are probably that it introduces the uh, what at the time we fans could only call the conspiracy uh, because we had no idea what shape it would ultimately take, and it certainly seemed at the time to be kind of a shadowy conspiracy. Even though later on it obviously was revealed to be a a government program. Uh, would ultimately become Cadmus. And uh, the second way this episode is mainly important is because it introduces the question. A favorite character of many fans, myself included, voiced by the incredibly cool Jeffrey Combs. And I'll talk a little bit about uh, both the character and the actor as they uh, as they come along later in the episode and give you some background as far as the question's character is concerned. Here's Kara's room on the Kent farm that we last saw in Comfort and Joy, and she's still got the same picture of the the boy band above her bed. And in fact, we'll see another photo of that same boy band on the Questions bulletin board. He apparently believes they're part of his conspiracy. I remember when this episode first aired, um, we fans really had no idea that uh, JLU was going to deviate from the sort of anthology structure that we were initially told it was going to adhere to. We had no idea it was going to become a much more serialized show later on. We had no idea that there was going to be a huge overarching plot, what would ultimately become the Cadmus plot. Uh, And so when this episode aired, we were just blown away by how deep uh, this subplot appeared to be. I mean, even in this first episode, we're introduced to the idea that characters we've seen all the way back as far as uh, Superman, like Volcana, and then in earlier seasons of Justice League, like the Royal Flush Gang and so on, and then we see Hardcastle again and everything, it it, uh, it sort of ties everything together in a way that none of the fans really expected. And so when the episode first aired, after Hardcastle gave his little speech about how deep the rabbit hole goes, so to speak, um, Galatea came in to kill him and they cut to the uh, the commercial break. I remember I muted the TV and I sort of paced up and down uh, my living room trying to sort of take it all in and, and just sort of come to grips with how 
how far reaching the implications were of what we had just learned and, and how much everything was being tied together. It just took the fans completely by surprise. We had no idea anything like this was coming. Turned out to be one of the best things they ever did was uh, was the Cadmus subplot. I like, uh, it's a small thing, but the way they have characters that it would make sense for them to hang out together in the background. Like they have uh, old-timey Justice Society members in the comics, like Iron Man and Dr. Midnight uh, sitting together. And later, in another episode, they have the Adam and Dr. Light, of course, two physicists sitting together. And just little touches like that I, I always enjoyed. Here he is, the man himself, Jeffrey Combs, is the question. Jeffrey Combs uh, came to the attention of the producers... Uh, because of his starring role in the Reanimator movies, which I myself have never seen. Uh, but many fans, sci-fi fans particularly, and, my, and myself in particular, uh, know him best from Star Trek Deep Space Nine, where he played two characters, Wayun and Brunt, and Star Trek Enterprise, where he played Shran. So, no stranger to sci-fi and horror fans, and how incredibly cool is the question in this role... When uh, when they had Jeffrey Combs in doing the questions voice in the, in the recording studio and they were laying down the track for the episode, it became immediately apparent to the writers and producers just how cool the question was going to be because of Jeffrey Combs' performance. And Bruce Tim apparently turned to uh, to his other producers and said, or, or I'm not sure if one of them turned to him, quite frankly, it did, but the point is that uh, they said, can we just do the question show from now on? So, they knew they had a hit, a hit on their hands uh, the second he appeared, the second they recorded the episode. Apparently, there was another scene that was going to be in the episode where they actually uh, introduced him in a, a bit more of a traditional manner, because you don't even, it's hard to even catch his name in this episode. It's only mentioned really quickly by Jean when, she call, when he calls him on the comlink later on. Uh, he had a bit more of a fleshed-out introduction that they cut out in editing but uh, they more than made up for it by bringing him back later on. So here we have Professor Neil Hamilton from Superman the Animated Series uh, with brown hair as opposed to the uh, the gray hair that he had in Superman and voiced by a different actor, uh, Robert Foxworth here. And uh, and here's where we start to get a lot of the, uh, the fallout from Legacy from the series finale of Superman the Animated Series. This is the same uh, background that they used for uh, Legacy when Kara was being operated on. And uh, this episode begins to call back a lot of the stuff from Legacy and begins to really deal with the ramifications of that episode, again, in a way that we fans weren't really expecting. Hamilton apparently... Minded in psychoanalysis. I don't know why they're so taken in by that. So here in a second, uh, our trio is going to be attacked by Zeta robots. Um, they're referred to here as Z8 combat trainers. They're the same robots that we saw the League training with in Secret Society. And of course, uh, they're meant to be early prototypes of what goes on to become uh, the Zeta series of robots in Batman Beyond. Uh, one of those robots, of course, went on to star in his own series, The Zeta Project. So they set up here early on that uh, these were developed by the mil military for uh, assassination and uh, 
and were sold to the Justice League for training, ironically, as one goes on to be a minor antagonist to, uh, to Terry McGinnis in Batman Beyond, and then, of course, becomes a good guy. I love here they show, they set up early on the question is willing to kill, by the fact that he clearly has no way of knowing that those soldiers could possibly get away from those grenades in time, even though they do. So during the uh, action-y lulls in the episode here, when I don't have as much to talk about, I'm going to give you some, uh, some background about the question, since this is his first appearance. Uh, the question was created by Steve Ditko, much as Hawk and Dove and the Creeper and Captain Adam were. Uh, he first debuted in a backup strip, and the, he did not have his own series. Uh, he was a backup feature in uh, in the Blue Beetle series. So he debuted in Blue Beetle number one in uh, 1967, June of 1967. And uh, in some ways the question served as a mouthpiece for Steve Ditko to put out there some of his uh, objectionist beliefs. Steve Ditko was a big subscriber in the objectionist philosophy uh, laid out by Ayn Rand in her books such as The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. Uh, don't know a lot about objectivism myself. Most of what I know about objectivism objectivism comes from what I've seen and read of the question. But uh, feel free to look it up. So uh, Ditko would use the question to put some of his beliefs out there, although he wasn't quite as uh, unsubtle about it with the question as he uh, later became with another one of his creations, which has not endured uh, Mr. A, which was blatantly just a mouthpiece for objectivism. The question was a bit more subtle, and, and his stories, uh, perhaps as a result of that, have, have endured a bit more. Um, okay, so here we have General Hardcastle, still voiced by Charles Napier from Superman the Animated Series. He's aged a hell of a lot in the past couple of years, apparently, and uh, has not been watching his midsection quite as much. Uh, I don't know why he's aged so much, and none of the other characters seem to, but it, it kind of works in the context of the episode. Uh, the other uh, point which is raised here when Hardcastle says they have files on all of you, some people began to wonder if that meant that the government knows all of their secret identities. Uh, it becomes clear later on that Amanda Waller knows Batman's, but as far as whether they know who, say, Green Arrow is, not that the beard isn't a dead giveaway anyway, uh, is never quite made clear. But anyway, back to the question. Um, his series didn't last very long, or rather his backup feature at the back of the Blue Beetle series didn't last very long. And it would have seemed that he was going to fade into obscurity until DC Comics purchased all the Charlton, Charlton Comics characters, such as The Question and Captain Atom and Blue Beetle and Nightshade and, and others, uh, just before the big Crisis on Infinite Earths miniseries in 1985. And so the question and those other characters were introduced into the DC universe under the pretext of them having lived on Earth-C, C for Charlton. And after the crisis was over, of course, all those Earths were merged into one, and the question took up residence on the only Earth that existed anymore in the DC universe. Uh, shortly thereafter, he got his own series for the first time, written by Denny O'Neill, uh, a very acclaimed series, which unfortunately has not been reprinted since. I would I would love to read some of it, but I don't quite have the uh, the patience to track down the back issues. Uh, Denny O'Neill, so here's Galatea's theme. Uh, and Galatea's outfit, for those who don't know, 
is an obvious nod to Power Girl, uh, another character in the comics who's essentially Supergirl from an alternate Earth. So it makes sense here that they would kind of give her Power Girl's outfit, the the, the white, uh, the gold belt, and the gap in her costume uh, just above the breasts are obvious nods to the Power Girl costume. But uh, Denny O'Neill's question series kind of took a different philosophical bent um, in the first issue, the question basically got his ass handed to him, and he took it upon himself to uh, relearn martial arts and uh, t- and took the opportunity to sort of get a new perspective on life. And after he retrained as a martial artist under uh, the great martial artist Richard Dragon, he took a more zen, uh, almost Buddhist approach to his adventures. And uh, although each issue would have a different philosophical moral, and in fact, Denny O'Neill would include at the back of each issue uh, recommended reading for those interested in following up on some of the uh, the philosophical implications raised by a particular issue. Uh, the uh, the sort of Zen philosophy that Denny O'Neill gave the question uh, wasn't quite as in your face as the whole objectivist thing, and uh, and it's sort of become another another main aspect, it, part of the dichotomy that exists in the question between his sort of uh, Zen attitude and the objectivism beliefs that the comics uh, since then have kind of tried to, to balance both. And uh, and that was the question's high point until relatively recently when um, he's gotten a, uh, a co-starring role in DC Comics' weekly series 52, uh, which is still currently ongoing and in which he is apparently contracted a terminal case of lung cancer. So as of this recording, uh, he's sort of fading away, and we should know relatively soon his fate. So this is actually the question's real face here. A lot of people assume that he's in disguise or whatever, but uh, as we see later on in Question Authority when he takes his mask off, this is what he actually looks like. And he uses this gas uh, to coat his face with a material called pseudoderm, and it also changes the uh, the color of his hair from red to black and the color of his clothes from whatever they currently are to blue. Quite a handy gas. And here is the first appearance of Green Arrow without his mask. And the uh, first time his name is mentioned, Ollie, as in Oliver Queen, of course. So the question's real name uh, was originally supposed to be Vic Sage, but it was then retconned to be that his real name was Charles Victor Zaz, and that Vic Sage was simply an, uh, a stage name, if you will, that he took when he became a, uh, a news reporter, a, a news broadcaster. Uh, ironically enough, part of what the question is is no, best known for to, uh, to casual comics readers is not for his own adventures, but rather for uh, a character based off of him, Rorschach in Alan Moore's uh, classic Watchmen series, where basically everything about the question was taken to the nth degree, and uh, Rorschach was just a completely brutal, uh, take-no-prisoners-never-compromised vigilante. And so what the question is, is best known for, ironically, is not for anything he himself has done, but rather a character that was based off of him. Here in a second, Kara is going to uh, open up a file on Galatea, and Ollie's going to remark that Galatea is a little more mature than her, 
which of course is true in the sense that Galatea is animated and is the character model looks a lot uh, older and uh, more developed, shall we say, than uh, than Kara. But given that Kara is supposed to be about 20 in this episode, you would think that she would be as developed as she's going to get, and so the two of them should look basically identical. But I guess since uh, since Galatea has undergone you know more training, more formal training, and as you know we see her lifting huge weights in, uh, in Flashpoint and so on, perhaps that's part of the reason why she's uh, she's a bit bulkier in areas. So Cadmus has a holodeck. <laughs> Who'd have thought? So here in a second, we're going to get the great bit where the question singing the pop song that he heard in the cab as he breaks into the Nouveau Gen building. And a uh, funny story that Bruce Tim passed on on the message boards was that originally they wanted the question to be singing the second verse of the song, which contains the lyric, uh, Last night after I swore off men. Of course, the the singer that sings the song in the that we hear as as we hear it in the cab is female and obviously the question is male the idea was not to hint that the question was gay but rather hint that the question is so absent-minded that he's just singing the last thing he heard with no regard to what the lyrics actually imply about him uh but apparently it was too hard for jeffrey combs to to get the beat of the the song uh to those lyrics and so they changed it so that he now sings the first verse verse of the song would have been funny. Apparently, uh, broadcast standards and practices didn't have any problem with it. Maybe they just didn't get uh, get the subtext or not. But it would have been cool. But it's still one of my favorite moments and one of Bruce Timms as well. I don't know why it works so well. It's not like it's not like the question is completely nuts, or it's not like you know he's a he has failed aspirations to be a singer or something. But it's just a quirky little bit. The absent-minded conspiracy theorist. So the uh, the name Galatea actually uh, dates back to mythology, and uh, and I did look it up in uh, in preparation for recording this commentary. That's just how and retentive I am. Uh, the story goes that Pygmalion, the king of Cyprus. Uh, although he had many women who wished to obviously marry him and uh, take part in his great empire, uh, was not interested in any of them, and in fact sculpted a woman, his ideal woman, out of ivory, and named her Galatea. And the goddess Aphrodite, uh, moved by Pygmalion's sorrow and uh, noticing that the statue Galatea actually bore no small resemblance to herself, breathed life into the statue, and uh, Galatea was made flesh, and she and her love Pygmalion uh, were together. So the idea, I suppose, behind naming the character in this episode Galatea is that it's a, it's a copy, if you will, uh, a replica of a god, in this case, uh, Supergirl, uh, made by men, as opposed to uh, coming about naturally, I suppose is, is what they were going for, although it's certainly obscure and you kind of have to work it a little bit to, to make the analogy work. 
Uh, I love what they do here. It's a small thing, but their costumes, when they when Galatea and Kara's costumes get torn up during the battle, uh, Galatea's isn't quite as torn up yet as it's going to be, but Kara's is, and what you notice is that their costumes begin to mirror each other, where Galatea's sleeves are torn, so they look like short sleeves, like Kara's are, and Kara's costume gets torn across the chest, so it looks like it has a gap, so you can see it there, it looks like it ha- has a gap in the same place as Galatea's does. Uh, the idea, of course, metaphorically speaking, is that the, as the lines between them are becoming blurred, as the question is getting through to her and showing to her that she does have some of Supergirl's conscience after all, that they physically begun to, begin to take on the characteristics of each other. Here, this bald guy, a lot of the fans assumed it was Lex Luthor, because, you know, he's, he's the only bald guy we know, basically. But uh, Bruce Tim immediately set us straight and said, "No, that was that's not Lex Luthor. It was not it, it was not intended to be Lex Luthor. We realized we probably shouldn't have made him bald because we know because obviously the fans' minds are only going to go to one place when they see a shadowy bald guy. But it was just intended to be some nameless government flunky because, of course, Lex wouldn't be taking orders from anybody, nor would he be sitting in a small little room executing things on a computer terminal." I love how Green Arrow rushes in to try to save her. Uh, it's a great little character bit. And I love the music here uh, as the sound effects fade away and you get a little bit of a shaky cam effect from the explosion. And the uh, the synthetic choir just kind of comes up right there. It's really beautiful. And that's really a really beautifully animated explosion, too. They didn't do that split screen thing very often. It's kind of kind of corny. So there, uh, there you have it. Fearful symmetry. At the time, it uh, blew everyone away, and uh, in retrospect, it's uh, it's perhaps even more impressive because we now, you know, we we see what it led to and how well everything was set up here uh, initially. And it just all uh, dovetailed so beautifully by the end. So there we have Galatea, injured and beaten, lying on the same table that Supergirl uh, was on several years earlier. And the father and daughter relationship between Hamilton and Galatea would be played out later on in uh, Panic in the Sky. So there we go. What more can you ask for but uh, an episode that's got Jeffrey Combs and the first establishment of the uh, the Cadmus story arc. Thanks for listening. <laughs>